continuing our series, Costly Grace, and uh, very excited about this. Remember I said it's a discipleship series. It's one that is going to have some conviction in it uh, for people that have been following Jesus for a while, and it's something that's going to challenge us to uh, be changed, to be more like Him, and to uh, redevote ourselves to Him. And last week, for those of you that missed it or need a refresher, we looked at Costly Grace versus Cheap Grace. The cheap grace says, I just want a ticket into heaven. I don't want to change. I just want grace, and I, I want to stay the way I am and do whatever I want. And costly grace says, I understand that Jesus Christ paid a, a huge price for my salvation. I want to be changed into his image. I'm looking to him. He's the one that I have my eyes fixed on. And we talked about uh, plowing straight rows and saying, I have my eyes fixed on you. I'm not worried about what other people think. And we looked at some of those examples where people said, you know, I, I got to go take care of family. I got to do this. But it was our eyes are fixed on Jesus. So we're building on that. And today in this message, we're going to look at a, a chapter and a, and a verse that would really be confusing. I'm just going to be honest with you. If you ever read it without knowing uh, a lot about following Jesus, if you read it as a child, it would seem completely confusing. But it does build on our loyalty to Jesus Christ, the fact that he's number one, that he's first in our life, our allegiance is to him, and this costly grace means that he laid down his life so that we could be forgiven, but now we're following him. We are, we are his disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. And so this verse is Luke chapter 14, verse 26. I'm going to read it again. If you, if you don't have it explained to you, it would be confusing. And again, really, if you're a kid, I can imagine reading this as a child and being completely confused. Jesus is speaking, and he says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. You can imagine, you know, reading that as a kid, and if you have brothers and sisters, you're like, amen, Lord, sister, I got that one, you know, all right, you know. Uh, but you can imagine you're thinking, wait, I've got to hate mom and dad. I, I, I'm trying to understand this, and even you might be thinking that right now, like, I'm trying to figure this out. What does it mean I'm supposed to hate them? And we're going to look and dig into this and try to understand this, but I want to let you know what he's saying here right off the bat is he's saying your love and allegiance to him is so high. It's so great. The gap is so big between first and second place that it almost seems like hate at this level because your devotion and love is so strong at this level. Now, you may not understand this. When you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you said, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. And I apologize if you went to a church or even at this church, if you didn't fully understand it, that you didn't know when you raised your hand, you said the prayer, you gave your life to Jesus Christ, that you were actually saying, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. You're over everything. You're not just going to save me from hell and give me eternal life. I love the Savior, but you're also Lord. 
And because you're Lord over my life, um, my allegiance is to you, my worship is to you, I will follow you, I'll be shaped by you, I'll be directed by you. That's what you were saying. And he's your Lord over your life. He's number one in your life. That's what you were doing. And you were saying no to these other things and saying yes to Jesus. And it's true, he's your savior, but he's also your Lord. And I think if a lot of us were honest, a lot of us would say we like the savior part. You know, we like that. And if we could pull this off, which we can't, um, I think a lot of us would say, Jesus, I want you to be my savior and I will remain my Lord. I will remain my Lord. I want you to be savior and you, you, you keep me out of hell and I will make the call in my life. And it doesn't work that way. Jesus is Lord over our life and costly grace says, I'll follow you. you. You get to make the call. My number one allegiance is to you. And although we don't understand this term Lord that much because let's be honest, we don't, we don't use it other than in church. I'm trying to think of a, of another context that I hear it a lot, and I don't hear it in sports, I don't hear it you know, out in the community, you don't hear it at your job. If you do, I wanna know where you work. You know? <laughs> but um, to put this in context, when the early church saw that Jesus was their savior and their Lord, they understood it because they were in the Roman Empire and the people would greet each other by saying, Caesar is Lord. And it didn't just mean he was government ruler over you. It meant he was government ruler over you. And he thought he was God over you and you had to worship him. And so they'd greet each other with Caesar is Lord. And they'd say, yes, he's Lord. And the Christians had a problem because they're like, no, he's not. And how many know that if you have to greet each other with Caesar is Lord and Jesus is saying, I'm Lord, I'm the one you're worshiping, I'm the one that's in charge, how many know there's a conflict going to happen? That's exactly what happened in the early church. Polycarp was an early church bishop and he said, I, I refuse to do this. And they uh, took his life from him because he said, I refuse to do this. Jesus is Lord. He's the one that's over me. He's in charge of me. I am his disciple, his follower. The grace that he's given me is so costly. I'm not going to deny him. He is number one in my life and nothing can take away that spot. He's Lord. So in this here, we're, we're looking at this, that Jesus Christ is our Lord, and he's saying, if anyone comes to me, doesn't hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. He's saying, I'm in charge of you. I'm over you. I'm number one. Basically, he's saying, your number one allegiance is to me, and I've planted the flag in your life. You can imagine like a country flag. He says, my flag is on your life. I have claimed you. I have claimed this territory for me. I'm number one. All your allegiance is right here. And he's saying it's on a, a macro level and a micro level. On the high level, he's saying I'm Lord over eternity. And on the micro level, level he's saying I'm Lord over every one of your little decisions. Yeah. And that's what he's saying here. And so when we read this text, it's like, I had to dig into it. I'm like, anyone doesn't hate. So I looked up the meaning of the word hate, and you know what it means? Hate. <laughs> That's what it means. It means hate. And so I'm looking at it, I'm trying to figure it out. Like, okay, I'm teaching this, and Jesus is calling for us to follow him and to hate. But here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to have personal animosity towards them. It doesn't mean to be mean to them. It means that 
compared to the way that I love God, compared to this, I have such a love for him. He gets such allegiance that you guys are so low. The gap is so big. It, it's like love and hate. But I love you, but you got to understand there will be times. There will be times that you will not understand what's going on. You, you will not understand. Some of my actions may appear to you as hate, but I don't hate you. I just love Jesus so much, I can't listen to what you're saying. It's, it's, it's really that level of loyalty. Think about it. Maybe you have a, a degree in law, and your family is like, okay, you're coming to work for the firm, and you know, you're gonna make all that money, and you're like, you know what? God has called me to be a lawyer uh, to help people in human sex trafficking to get out of that, and I'm not gonna make lots of money, but I'm gonna help people for the kingdom of God. And your family's like, what? You turn your back on the family? You turn your, you're going to do, after all we invested in you, you want to go and do that? And you're like, I, I just want, it's God called me to do this. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey. I mean, we talk about William Borden and uh, this, this missionary that went to Egypt and, and died after being there only one month. He was a, a millionaire and his family said, if you go, if you go, if you follow Jesus' call to the mission field, then we're writing you out. You're done. You are dead to us. And they're saying, if you go, it's like you're hating us to go there. And he's like, guys, I love Jesus so much, I can't stay. I can't stay. Maybe your family does something that is culturally acceptable to them, but Jesus isn't okay with it. Maybe your family sits around and slanders the neighbors and just tears them to shreds, and all of a sudden you're feeling convicted, like, I can't do that anymore. And so you're at the dinner table, and you're not talking, like, what's wrong with you? I'm not going to talk bad about the neighbors. Oh, what are you all so holy? <laughs> or maybe they steal cable, and you're like, yeah, I don't want to steal cable. And they're like, well, then you go do Etch-A-Sketch or whatever. I mean, I don't know. They're like, get out of here. I don't want you around. You know what I mean? But whatever it is, it's culturally acceptable to them, but you're not doing it anymore because your allegiance is to God and not to them, and they don't like that, okay? Now, I want to give you some real-life examples of this, and all of them deal with family, but two of them deal with marriage, okay? I'm just being, just letting you know, there's three illustrations and three ways to look at this, but they're all family and two are our marriage, but I got a call this week. I was working on this text, and I'm digging through it, and I get a call from a friend in the church. And he says, uh, Pastor Rob, he goes, I, I need you to be my pastor right now, not my friend, not my golfing friend. I need you to be my pastor right now. You need to talk me down from this because I'm so mad at my family. I can't stand it. I can't even see straight. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, you know, we've loved the church and Christ has saved our life and it's made such a huge difference in our life and we lead a life group and we do all this stuff. And he said, and, 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 so our family invited us to a birthday party, but we couldn't be there right on time because our life group was going on. And so they said, well, we're not moving the time. You need to get here as soon as, you know, get here. Just don't go to your life group. And they thought, you know, we're life group leaders. We can't do this. And so they do their life group, end it, go right over to the birthday party. They get there. The family's all mad at them. You know, you can imagine. And then that night, the dad calls. And the dad says, hey, you have to get your priorities in line. Family is family, and that comes first. This church stuff is way out of control. You guys are going to church and life grouping and serving and global teams. What is wrong with you? Family is first. Now, you can imagine at that moment, he is like wanting to read them Luke 14. How many know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I hate you. But he didn't. But I'm glad he didn't. Glad he didn't. But he's struggling. 
Because see, they're not understanding it. And they're, they're not understanding that when they go on the global team and they're, and they're not there for the family get together, it's not that they hate their family, it's that their allegiance to Christ is so strong that it dictates everything they do, macro and micro. And so he says, what am I going to do? He goes, I just want to call him and say, we're out of here. I've got brothers and sisters in Christ here, and we'll have a birthday party with them. Bye, you know? And he says, but I, I, I get convicted that that's not the right answer. That's why I called you. <laughs> so it, it was one of those things where we're struggling, and I'm talking to him, and I said, well, I, it, you won't believe this. I'm actually preaching on it this weekend, so let's solve this, and let's try to understand this. And we, t- we came up with this, like, that he could call him and say, hey, you may not understand my loyalty to, to Jesus, but um, we love you as our family, and that's not going to change. And we just need you to know that um, Christ has meant so much to us and has changed our lives. And Christ has changed our marriage and our kids, and everything's different, and we have so much purpose and joy and peace. And um, we, we want to be there for those things, and we need to work together. You know, if we could get some advance notice as much as possible, we will maneuver things whenever possible and make it to be there. Um, you know, we just love you and ask for a lot of grace with each other, a lot of forgiveness. And, and if you could understand, we will make every effort whenever possible to be there. We're not isolating. And we're just, so he's, he's envisioning this. And he goes, yeah, but I could just see him. He's going to say, well, you better get your priorities right. And I said, well, you're just going to have a lot of grace. And just say, well, just work with us. And then he said, well, you'll probably say it again. I said, well, just keep saying it over again. Work with us. Work with us. And don't read him Luke 14, all right? Don't do that. And he's like, okay, I'm going to do that. But he said, it's just, it's so hard. It was just so tough because they don't understand my priorities. My family doesn't understand. And that's what Jesus was talking about here. When you really love him, when you understand that he's your Lord and Savior, and that costly grace requires a change in the way you live, macro level, micro level, the way you do all this stuff, big and small, your family is going to think that you hate them. And you don't, but they will misinterpret it, and it's going to be a struggle. It's really like Jesus said in, you know, the Bible, and, and God talks about in Genesis, he says, you know, leave and cleave. And Jesus uh, reaffirms it in the Gospels. And he says, a man will go and leave and cleave. He'll leave his family and cleave to his new family. It's like that same thought. You're saying, hey, family, you used to be number one, but now I have purpose in my life. Now I understand God more. Now I understand that he's number one. I'm leaving and cleave. I'm holding on to him. My loyalty is there. I'm in love with him. And please don't misinterpret this. I'm just in love with Jesus. Another situation, um, same thing with the family, though. I had one family. They said, uh, we just have a problem with our kid. He's always at your church and in life groups and, and serving. And they were all mad at me. And they're like, why can't they be like his twice-divorced twice drunk brother that shows up at Christmas and Easter? And I thought, seriously, are you serious? Did you just say that? They're like, why are they so serious with God? I mean, why can't they be like him? And I thought, seriously, you'd rather have them be like that than devoted to Christ. And so they don't understand what's going on. But here's the deal. Jesus has the end game in mind. That's why he said this. He has the end game. He says, I want you in heaven. I want your family in heaven. I want those around in heaven. And he has the end game in mind. And he said, I know that family will pull against what I have. And if you're going to follow me, you got to understand I'm first. Family second. And there may be times that they think that it's hate, but it's not. 
but they're going to misunderstand you, but you've got to follow me. I am number one. I don't want your faith to cool down. I don't want you to let up. I want to see you in eternity. I want everybody else around you in eternity, and I have the end game in mind. Now, uh, developing this, and I talked to the youth group about this, and uh, we, we talked about this with why would God tell us then um, to not be unequally yoked with non-believers? Because it totally makes sense in, like, in light of this. And so I wanted to develop, remember I had one on family and two on marriage. And so the ones on marriage here, uh, I actually spoke to the youth group this week about it. Second Corinthians 6.14 says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And so here's this illustration with the same concept that God's first and everything else is second. And he's saying if God's first in your life and you're going to get married, this gap is so big, you can't handle it if that gap is with a non-believer. Don't choose a non-believer. I want you to be yoked together with a believer so you're both on mission with me going the same direction. And if you don't do that, what's going to happen is the same thing. They're going to think like you hate them. You're going to be saying, let's go to church. They're going to say, let's go to the beach. And they're going to say, you know, why don't we spend our money on this? And you're going to say, why don't we tithe? And they're going to say, that's crazy. And they're going to, and they're going to have these struggles and these things that are going back and forth. And you're going to say like, well, I want to go on a global team. And they're going to say, no, I want to go and, and party up. And on the high level and on the low level, and they're going to talk one way, and you're going to say, I don't talk that way. And they're going to say, let's go to this movie, and you're going to go, I don't want to go to that movie. Why? Well, because of the Lord, and I, you know, there's a lot of nudity in there, so I don't want to go to that movie. And, and do you see the conflict? And so th- when the Apostle Paul is writing this in 1 Corinthians, he's saying, uh, you know, I- I'm telling you, in 2 Corinthians, he's saying, you know what, watch it. Don't be unequally yoked because he's so high in your list. He's number one and he demands loyalty. And he's saying, don't enter into another relationship on purpose with somebody that doesn't share that same loyalty. It's so clear because, again, that same person is going to try to either make your faith cold. That person's going to try to make Jesus out of the center. That person's going to try to marginalize what you do. And even if that doesn't happen, you will live in isolation from them. Because the number one thing in your life will not be number one, and you'll have this giant gap. And as they're all excited about these other things, you're still so excited up here, and you're feeling isolated from one another. That's why the Bible's saying to not do this. And it's another way to understand that our love for God is first. Being a disciple changes everything. Now, the same thought, another marriage example here. If, if Christ is number one and, and, and family is number two and it's so distant, if someone was involved in a marriage and they were actually married to somebody that wasn't a believer, wouldn't it make logical sense then if you follow the logic that God's number one and you're supposed to like almost have this level of hatred towards family because the gap's so big, if you're married to a non-believer, wouldn't it make logical conclusion that if you were in that situation, you'd say, I'm out. It would make logical sense to say, I'm out. If I'm married to a non-believer, and I'm a believer, and I'm following God, and the gap's so big, I'm out. But the Lord throws us a curveball, if you will. He throws us a curveball in 1 Corinthians 7. It says this, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. And he goes on to talk about, hey, you might win them over. You might win them over. 
And he's saying, even though number one, God is way up here and he wants to be number one in your life, if you've come into a a covenant relationship with somebody, even though they're not gonna understand everything you do and they may misinterpret some of the things you do as hate, he's saying, stay in that relationship. Stay in that relationship. And he's saying, don't look for a way out. Don't be looking to bail on this thing. Stay in the relationship. And he's saying, even though I'm number one in your life and the the gap's so big and they're pulling the opposite direction, stay in that. Stay. You are there for a reason. And really, it's as if God is saying, they've become your mission field. And some of you are like, oh, that I am a missionary to the meanest unreached people group. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's what you're thinking. But that's your call. That's your call now. He's saying, stay in there. The gap is big, but you're on mission now and you're in covenant relationship with somebody that the gap is big, but you still need to stay with it. Now, in addition to this, he's saying, be realistic. Be realistic about that person. They may not be kind. They may not be nice. They're not gonna have a lot of the fruit of the spirit because they're not filled with the spirit. And so he's saying, be realistic. They're gonna exhibit behavior that is not godly. And I just wanna say this, that... The Bible is very clear that if you're involved in a relationship and the spouse is not being faithful sexually, if they are full of infidelity and that's going on, then it says the believer's not bound. It says if you're married to a non-believer and that gap's so big that the non-believer doesn't want anything to do with the relationship and they want to leave, they're saying you're not bound. But if they want to stay, you need to stay in it. I want to let you know that in the area of physical abuse, because it does come up, the church counsels people to go to a neutral corner, get out of that environment and go to a neutral corner, try to get that person the help they need so that you are not uh, being physically abused. Okay, so we understand there's a lot of complexities here, but that's your mission field. That's your mission field. So he's saying, be realistic. And then another thought when I think about this, he's saying, really, like, don't set a time for the conversion. I've actually heard people say this, well, my love for Jesus is so strong. I'm just going to the mission field, and I'm ditching this one. If they don't get saved in three years, I'm out of (laughs) here. How many are glad that God didn't give you three years? Especially ages 13 to 16, you know what I'm saying? Like, you have from 13 to 16 get saved, or you're straight to hell, you know what I mean? How many are glad he didn't do that? Okay, so don't, don't set it. You, you made an agreement, and if they want to stay in this, then you stay in that. You don't set a time for their conversion. 1 Corinthians seven fourteen, same area here. It says, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as, as, as it is, they are holy. Now, I want to let you know this. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, your love for God is so strong. They're on the separate page, but they want to stay in it. You're in this covenant relationship here. And he's saying, you know what you're doing? You're sanctifying them. Now, that doesn't mean they get into heaven for free. Kind of like, well, I'm married to her. She goes to church. I stay home and I get in. You know, that's not what it means. Sanctified means set apart. And so what, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is your love for God is there in that relationship and you've set them apart so the Holy Spirit's really gonna work on them. They've been sanctified and because you're in proximity, which we did through that series, because you're in proximity, he says, they've been set apart and now the Holy Spirit's got a special pipeline to work on them to bring them into that reality of Jesus Christ and you are there to keep them in proximity to the things of God. And even with your children, think about this. He's saying, stay in that relationship because as you're in proximity together with your spouse, you're also in proximity to your kids 24-7. 
But if you break that arrangement and you have joint custody is basically the concept here, guess what? You cannot control the kids when they're with dad and they're away for the week. You can't control what's going on. You can't bring sanctification to the family if you're not together and you have every other Thursday and every other weekend. And so it's saying your kids, when you're in this proximity here, all of a sudden there's that sanctification going on right there. I've talked to people that are in a divorce situation and they're like, I was opposed to it, but I couldn't stop it. It happened. And they say, when the kids get back from mom or dad, I practically have to deprogram them for the week, you know? They come back and their behavior is horrible and they're this. They tell me all these things they saw and all these things they did and I can't believe it. And they would say, yes, that's right. Stay in that relationship. Don't let them leave. If they want to stay, stay there. Another thought in this is concentrate on your conduct. And if I could say it very simple... Don't quote me, live Jesus. Don't quote me, live Jesus. Sometimes I've seen people come in and they like, I love Jesus so much and my spouse is so bad and the gap's so big. Give me some weapons to go home and beat them with. You know what I mean? That is not a good thing. Don't quote me, live it. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 1, wives in the same way submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words, without words, by the behavior of their wives. It's interesting stuff. Remember, family's gonna think you hate them. Uh, other people, you know, there's marriage illustrations here, but I'm, I wanna, this is something that we deal with. It's real church that I wanna deal with. Use words at the right time, okay? There's gonna be a moment when you can use words to share with a non-believing spouse. It's gonna happen. You may do something amazing and they may say, this was the most amazing. You love me like I never thought I could be loved. It's a great opportunity for you to say, well, you know what? I've just been loved at such a high level by God and I just wanna pass that on. That's why I love you. Good little right in there, right? Some of you are like, ooh, that's good. I'm writing that one down, all right? Don't do this. Wow, you just love me at a, you know, this, I just never knew I could be loved like this. And you just look at me, you go, it's only Jesus. <laughs> the only way I could love you is Jesus, trust me. <laughs> Total loser. It's because of Christ in me, that's it. Don't do that, all right? Wrong way to do it. So give glory to God. Um, a couple other thoughts. Uh, have it be short answers and don't lecture them. Have it be short answers. Just don't lecture them. And then pray and, and pray and use that weapon. God, help me to pray and pray them into the kingdom. Help me to pray them into the kingdom. Help me to pray them into the kingdom. All right. The gap is big. The gap is big. It's very clear from our text. Man, it's hate. It's such a gap that our love for God is so much, but he's, he's so in charge of us. Grace is so amazing. It's so costly. It demands us to, to not stay where we're at and be so loyal to him as our Lord, our Lord and Savior. And so we're gonna have these family members and spouses and non-believing spouses, all these things going on. This gap is gonna be so big. And I have one final thought for any situation that you find yourself in, whether it's friends, whether it's family, whether it's your marriage, wherever the case may be, you need to love them into the kingdom. The gap will appear to be hate, but the answer is you have to love them into the kingdom. They, they won't understand it. They won't be able to, 
they can't figure out why you do what you do with your finances, with your vacation, with all these other things that are going on, and the gap's going to seem so big, but you've got to love them into the kingdom. You can't argue them in. You've got to love them into the kingdom. And you've got to understand that when the gap is so big and it feels like hate to them, it's only because they don't see what you see. They don't see what you see. And the Bible is very clear in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. It says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They're blinded. They just don't see what you see. And we need to love them because they can't. We don't need to be arrogant towards them. We don't need to say, the gap's so big, I hate you. But instead, we, we live out this gap and love them because they're blinded. One closing illustration with this. Imagine you're checking out at the grocery store and you've got 20 items or less. You're in the express lane and you're there and you've got your items and you're checking out and there's somebody in front of you and he's standing there and you've got your items and you've got your just foot just out in front of you a little bit and he kind of steps back on your toe a little bit. You're kind of like, oh, 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 and he gets off your toe and you're like, okay, mind your space there, yeah. You got your items, and all of a sudden you're standing there, and all of a sudden he steps back and squashes your foot. And you're kind of like, oh, you push him off, like, oh, you know. And you're like, hey, seriously. And all of a sudden he turns and elbows you a little bit in the stomach, and right about then you're ready to turn around and say, hey, buddy, listen up, you're stepping up my toes. And all of a sudden you realize he's blind. How many changes everything? And all of a sudden you go from, listen, buddy, to, hey, is there anything I can do to help you? Did you need some help? Because I just noticed, you know, here, let me, let me get you right up here. Here's the line right here. Isn't it interesting? It changes everything when you understand that they're blind. And that's how God is telling us to understand the gap is so big. Your loyalty to God is so strong. You love them so amazing. They cannot understand the gap. But he says they're blind. And instead of getting mad at them and hating them, love your family. But the gap is so big, it may appear to be hate. And I just pray that's the way we'll live it. That we'll love God so much but we'll love them. And even though they don't understand it, even though they say, you're so mean to us, you missed the birthday, you missed the thing, I can't believe you're going on the mission field, I can't believe you're doing all that, we'll love them even though the gap appears to them like hate. So God, I pray that you'd help us to understand this and to realize you're first. Following you demands, demands that you are Lord and Savior. You're over everything. You're, you're not just a part of it, you are everything. And so I'm asking right now, God, that we just have a resolve to love you at such a level that it would appear to our family and friends that they're so distant that sometimes they'd misunderstand what we're saying and doing and it would appear like hate, but it isn't. It isn't. And I pray that we'd use love to win them over. We'd use love. We'd love them. We'd understand that they're blind. We'd not be arrogant. We'd not be prideful, but we'd understand that they don't see things the way we do but we pray that they will. So God, help us to love you, to love you so much, to love you so much that everyone else in this world is a distant second. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.